Welcome to the One Hand at a Time podcast. I'm your host, Chris Welton. And today I have a guest that brings fire and energy. Every time I hear him, see him, I just know there's going to be some powerful content coming our way. Welcome to the show, Coach Michael Burt. Hello, sir. Thank you for having me. It's my, my honor and privilege to be here with you today. Well, I thank you. Trust me, the the honor and privilege is mutual. I want to talk first about how we met. Um, Those of you that follow my show know that I I do this thing called One Jordan. And um, I was able to get Coach Burt's shoe size and and send him (laughs) One Jordan. And and so far, I'm four for four. Um, Actually, I'm waiting for John Gordon to call me back. I haven't been able to get John Gordon to return my call yet, but I'm sure he will. So, Coach, what did did you think when you received that box at your house with one shoe in it? Well, I get, I get a lot of things from people, uh, but, and you know, some of them are, are, are cool and some of them are just notes, but my wife said, you know, you got one, you got, you got one, I think my daughter, my 10 year old daughter came to me and said, dad, you got one, you got one Jordan in the mail today. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I, and I opened it up and I read it and I thought it was, I thought it was bold. I believe in remarkable boldness. Number one. I believe in creativity. I believe that where there's there's no shortage of opportunity, there is a shortage of initiative, and uh, and so when you know I reward people who take initiative, and you know you put your number in there, you sent me a note, and you sent me a Jordan, and uh, this has been a new trend of people sending me shoes, so I like I like that. I like the Jordan. <laughs> well, I saw that you wear them, right? So that was the first thing, right? Because of course I follow you on social media. And- I'm a big Jordan fan. Like if you, if I turn the camera right now, you'd see a case full of my shoes in here, which I have a shoe problem. We can get into that a little bit later. Maybe get a diagnosis from the coach on why I do that. But so for me, it was about getting in front of you and having a conversation and separating myself from anybody else that's trying to reach out to you. Cause I know you're a hot commodity. People want to get to you and be near you. Um, and I wanted to be unique and do something different. I took that idea from Brad Lee. Yep. Um, he's the one who came up with that idea. But then when I shared it with my friend, Renee Rodriguez, yep. Renee said, no, he's the one who taught Brad that. So Brad <laughs> did not give him credit. <laughs> so I'm giving them both credit on the both, call. Both, here. <laughs> both very talented, very, very talented guys. They are. They are. So, um, you know, my book club currently at work, we're, we're reading your current book, flip the switch. I've got it here in front of me. And, um, as soon as I started reading it, I jumped in and I just felt all this energy and I, screenshotted some stuff and I sent it to my friend, Ben Newman. I'm like, Ben, if you haven't read this book yet, you've got to jump in and read this book. Let's talk, flip the switch where the idea came from to put that out there. Um, and then I want to go deeper with the people that don't know you and how you got into the the coaching position you're in now. You know, I've always been fascinated and motivated by what I call inner engineering people are building competitive intelligence in people. And that started at 18 when I, when I studied under Covey, you know, from 18 to 25, I was a deep disciple of Covey's. He was always whole person theory, body, mind, hearted spirit, and find your voice, inspire other people to find theirs. And so I was using a lot of those those methodologies as a young basketball coach, but I was always interested in what what really activates something inside of a person and how can they do it for themselves? How do they show up with batteries included every day? How do we flip a switch? And then fast forward, you know, 20-something years um, of me coaching all types of people, one big problem I continue to see is that people could not activate their drive every day. Large numbers of inconsistency. They didn't have the persistence it took to actually go and win. And so I'm like, you know what? This is a problem I want to try to solve. 
And so it was really sitting in a, in a workshop with my wife, with the former Vietnam veteran who was in the war dog division of the Vietnam War. And he kept talking about going out into the jungle ahead of the infantry with a dog and the dog having a prey drive, P-R-E-Y-D-R-I-V-E. And I was like, see, I love concepts. I love concepts that stick. And so when I saw prey drive, I looked it up, animals' ability to stalk, capture, and kill prey. And I go, humans have a prey drive. But it's their ability to see it and pursue it. See what? Dreams, goals, visions, ideas, either in the mind or optically with the eyes. And I go, I think I can do something with this concept. So I quickly trademarked the concept. I'm the only person who can really talk about prey driving humans. And then I deconstructed a theory, codified a theory, and really came up with my own motivational theory about how to activate that drive inside of a person. There's about 20 motivational theories out there. And I said, man, I'm going to come up with my own theory based on my 31 years of coaching on how to initiate a drive inside of a person. And so that's really what the book became about. Yeah, it's it's remarkable because the group, like the men that are in my book club, there's about 12 of us. And every Tuesday we break down another chapter of a book. And sometimes the book just isn't, some people take it, some don't, but I'm getting so much feedback positive from this book. And I know you're going to be on our call with us in a couple of weeks just to break it down. Every, every Tuesday, the guys are like, is coach bird on this week? Is coach bird on the week? I'm like, no, we're, we're on the, in May, but how do you keep your prey drive activated? You know, it's, it's, it's actually been harder as I've gotten older because, because I've just been doing this for so long. I mean, I, this is, this is my 31st year of coaching and, uh, I've gone hard, man. I've gone hard for long cycles of time, long work weeks, 80-hour work weeks, pushing. And I, when I retired from athletic coaching, I thought, you know, I'm going to go over here. I'm going to control my schedule more. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. But then I just put the same passion and intensity into this business as I did that business. Uh, but, but after you've done something for so many years, you re it really becomes a game. I mean, I think when I watched The Last Dance with Jordan, that's a great indicator because Jordan, at the end of his career, was tired. He was beat up. He, he had this pressure on him to perform every night. And, but he kept trying to find something, a competition, a, 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 fear, of, a fear of something, a losing, a, a wanting to be the greatest. Like he kept working to find something that would flip the switch. And that's kind of where I'm in my career. So I got new things going on, like building greatness factories. I'm building the first one in downtown Nashville, which is a big project. It's a $7 million project. It's got a state-of-the-art auditorium. It's really a place you can work, learn, grow, connect. It's a new game to play for me. Uh, I'm doing success schools with kids. I'm trying to build that out. I've just re-engineered and retooled my team. Uh, I'm constantly looking at how do I get to the, the next level. So there's all these things I put in front of me that serve as indicators. But I will get down in the weeds every day and make sales calls. I follow up with people. I close and convert. Like I very seldom tell another person to do anything I'm not currently doing. You know, and that's kind of what makes me different than a lot of people is, you know, I call people back personally. I talk to them. I, I listen to them. I coach. I mean, I'm a coach. That's what I do. So that's what brings me a tremendous amount of purpose. Yeah, so would you say you're more of a coach than you are a speaker? I would say I'm a coach that speaks. When mm -hmm. I speak for an hour, like I did yesterday, 250 real estate agents, top agents that are spending probably over 100000 a year in radio and advertising and television, uh, when I'm done, I'm, when I'm done, I need a shower. It's not a talk. Yes. I don't, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know how to give a talk. So even when I tell myself, I'm going to take it easy on this one, when I'm done, I'm sweating. I pour, I, I'm exhausted. 
I have poured everything I can into that talk because to me it's like, man, I'm in the locker room. We're trying to win. I got an hour with these people. I'm going to give them every, I mean, right up to the minute, I'm going to give them everything I've got. And that's who I am. I'm a coach. So speaking for me is is really coaching. I, I tell you, if you haven't seen Coach Burt live, you won't understand what I'm about to say. But, but if you're a basketball fan, you will. So Coach Burt comes off the stage and he comes out into the crowd when he speaks. And he just brings this enthusiasm with him. But... When I think of a successful basketball coach, I think of a guy who's sweating through his sport coat, right? And that's how I am when I speak. I warn the crowd before I get on stage that I'm very passionate about what I'm about to say. I'm not overheating. You don't need to call 911, but I'm going to sweat through this dark gray suit. It's going to happen. Yeah. And I had a coaching call earlier with a client, and I'm sweating. He goes, is it hot? I'm no. I said, I'm just real passionate about what I'm saying to you right now. Like, I believe what I'm saying, so I'm not just scripted to do this. Um I can see where that translated over from the basketball side to the business side. And I think we need more people that bring that passion when they stand on stage instead of just rambling on about statistics. But what I really enjoyed about what you just said too, was the, the fact that you pick up the phone call, you follow up, you call people back, you close deals. It reminds me of when I had a conversation with Ben recently Newman, and he was talking about coach Saban and he said, Coach Saban is be the example. He sprints in between drills, right? So I would say that if you were still coaching on a basketball level, yeah. Coach Burt's running suicides. That's just the kind of that's the that's the feel I get from you. Yeah, and I you know I coach my team every day internally, nine a.m. every morning. I teach them and coach them, and then I go do it. You know, and we we had a program for a while, Chris, called uh, Work with the Pro Day, and people paid I don't know five or ten grand to come spend a day with me, and. Um, at the end of the day, I said, what's the biggest thing you learned? And they said, number one, I don't work like you do. That's the first thing they said. I don't talk to as many people as you do. I don't market like you do. I don't promote like you do. I don't go at the pace you do. And if I didn't learn anything else, it was about pace and intensity toward a target. And I had kind of lost that in my life. You know, a lot of people don't work at a pace and intensity. In the basketball world, you play on Tuesday. If you win, you enjoy it that night. But you got a game coming on Friday, Right. There, there's always a game coming. It all goes to zero at midnight. There comes a time when winter asks what you did all spring and summer. You never relax because if you do, somebody else is winning. And so because I come from that world, that's how I approach business. You know, and a lot of people don't approach it that way. You know, take the mortgage world, for example. I remember coaching a, a $2 billion mortgage company several, probably two or three years ago, and they hired me to help them get to $5 billion. And I kept saying, we got to get them into coaching, man. We got to get them into coaching. We got to get them into training. We got This is the way I coach people. They kept saying, here's what the CEO told me. Oh, we'll hit $5 billion easy. We'll call you, coach, when we need to bring you in. And I said, huge mistake. Uh, because there comes a time when winter asks what you did all spring and summer. Now, fast forward, six months later, market turns. They lay 300 people off. And I'm like, see, we don't believe the same things. You don't coach in bad times, you coach all the time, okay? And so that told me that was not a good fit. I can't get you to $5 billion if we're gonna be casual with how we do this. That's not how you win championships, okay? So so we have all season, I get it. We have preseason, I get it. We have in season, I get it. But we need to be training all the time, just like an Olympia, Olympian trains. They may peak up or peak down, they may rest, they may rejuvenate, which is very important when you study peak performance. But, man, they're in there getting better every day. 
Yeah, I think that a lot of people become seduced by success too. Yes. Right, I think that they get to that level and then they don't realize it's not really about the outcome, it's about how we grew on our way there and then then they feel like they've won their championship and that's why I think you see so many people in sports and business that don't repeat. They win one and that's it because they're seduced by the way they feel right now. That's one reason. The other one is because they don't want to do that work again. Right. <laughs> they don't want to work that hard again, that's right? That's right. Well, and you, you're speaking, you're really speaking the language of prey drive uh, because one of the, there's a section in the book where I tackle big questions. Why do people become complacent? Why do good people get lazy? Why do this? And, and really when you study drive, it's uh, complacency comes because your, your, your needs are met. Satisfied needs never motivate only unsatisfied needs. So what's happened in our country is people, they get satisfied. I'm making a good living. I got a good job. I got a good house. It's all good. I decrease my prey drive. That suppresses the prey drive. Now I'm not going into battle. King David was a great king in the Bible until his own troops talked him out of going into battle, until he didn't go into battle. He stayed home. He got distracted. So this is a question I asked Tim Grover. Grover was texting me just a minute ago, right before I got on this, and we talk about every week. I said, did the, did the greats ever lose their confidence? Because, you know, I study a lot of confidence. And he said, no, they never lost their confidence. But they did get distracted from time to time. Okay? And distract means to pull apart. So what happens is I, I lose my focus. I quit prospecting every day. I'm hitting my numbers are coming easy. I quit getting in the gym early. I quit doing things I need to do to win. I get out of the habit of doing it. And it's hard to get back in the habit of doing it because of inertia. And I think that's what a lot of people do. So there's certain things you should be doing every single day. You should be calling on new people every day. You should be following up every day to convert people. You should be engaging with customers and clients every day. You should be planning events to invite people to in the future. Every day that you're working. Now, I take one day off a week, just like the Bible teaches. It's typically Saturday for me. Then go to church on Sunday, but I'm very creative on Sunday. So Sunday is really like a work day for me. My day off is typically Saturday if I'm not speaking. Uh, and then I need a day of rest, rest my body, spend time with my family, hang out, do whatever I want to. And then Sunday, I'm ready to get back in the game. And typically all I need is one day. I don't need five days. I just need one day. One day and I can rejuvenate and be ready to go. Do you do you take off scheduled a week or two a year with just the family and shut it down and step away from the business? What does that look like for you? Yeah, I operate on, on an entrepreneurial time system uh, that I learned from Dan Sullivan. Uh, so I rest, I practice, and I perform. You know, like to, like yesterday I spoke. It's very taxing. Uh, I had to go to an event last night, the late late last night, networking. I've had a lighter day today, but I have been coaching all morning. Uh, I have a pretty much free day tomorrow. I've got one thing on my schedule tomorrow, and then I got uh, to speak Friday morning to a, to a group and then get on the plane and fly to Florida to do a couples retreat. So I look at it like an entertainer, right? I have sex number of days I got to perform. But I need rest. Okay, I actually need time off to be able to peak up. Okay, and every study in the world shows how much rest top performers actually take to perform at a very high level. Because if you said, man, you got to go at that level every day, seven days a week, top performers couldn't do it. Okay, that's why football players rest, they practice, they perform. So that's that's a schedule that I use. Sometimes my day off is Thursday, like tomorrow, relatively free of any coaching. But but I got to do two things in Friday in two different states. So, so it's like, that's how I do it. Was that hard for you to conform to that rest part? At least for me as a top producer, it, it, it was hard for me to realize that I do do that now. And I schedule 
I have a couple vacations a year where I have no email access and I do those things. But a long time ago, it wasn't that way because as I started feeling that adrenaline of success and things are going great. I don't want to stop because if I stop, what's going to happen, right? And it's, and I sacrificed relationships and quality time and all those things because I was chasing that, that high of that money or that success. What did that look like for you? Yeah, that's hard for me. I set very aggressive targets that are almost unreachable sometimes. And it, that I also practice a term called mental subtractions, what psychologists call mental subtraction, which is where you pretend to give up something you love. And that reactivates your drive. Like I love this, I love that, you know. And 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 uh, it, but it's hard for me to, because I'm such a creative. It is hard for me to take prolonged periods of time off. Uh, but but I'm getting better. Uh, I'm getting better at that. I'm getting better at resting. Uh, I typically do do high value activities almost every day. I just got back from a Disney cruise with my family where we spent concentrated periods of time together. You know, so I try to be home every night. If I'm in town, I go to my office, I work hard. I go home at night, I see my kids. I get up in the morning, spend time with my kids. I get up at, you know, 5 or 5.30 and spend time with our youngest daughter, just getting her up and feeding her and spending quality time. Then I spend time with my son. Uh, my 10-year-old daughter, I'm always looking for things to bond us together. Uh, one regret I had is, Bill, I was always working when my 10-year-old daughter was young. So I really wasn't there like I have been for child two and three. And I've spent a lot of quality time with our second and third child. I've been a better dad. I've had more more intimate moments with our second and third child because I was always gone when Ella was was young. And it didn't occur to me. It just didn't occur to me, man. You need to you need to be a better dad here. You need to sh be here more. You need to be around her. You need to, you know, just just have these moments with her. So I'm always looking for things to do with her specifically now that she's ten. So because I know they get to a level, man, they go and they don't come back. Right. And that's, that is so true. That's important. I, I think that's very valuable what you just said. And I hope people really take heart with that because here's a guy who's a top performer at, on every aspect and level. If you follow him, you see him all over the place. He's on a plane, he's going here, he's going there, but he realizes the importance of spending that quality time with his kids. And a lot of people don't see that from other people that are on stage or that are leading. Um, and, and they wonder how they do it. Yeah. So that's a big deal. And, you know, I have a daughter who's 30 and right. I was working my tail off when she, I had her when I was 20. So I was working super hard and making things go. And then had another daughter seven years later, I spent some more time with her, but now they're out obviously on their own, doing their own thing. My wife and I are in the process of in vitro right now. So with God willing, we'll have another baby at the end of the year. Yep. And I know it's going to be way different for that child than it was for the two older ones. Cause I'm at a different place in my life. Um, and there's definitely some regret there with that. So I'm glad you shared that part of it because I, I don't think that's something that people are as open and as vulnerable about yeah. with that. Well, well, top people, you know, fight the same battles other people do. And, um, you know, Jimmy Evans did a sermon once called Changing Failure to Success. And he talked about the seven ways that the world measures success. See, the world measures success, fame, money, power, education, the looks, like the world tells you you're successful of these things. And as I was watching that sermon, I, I made a note and I wrote down the successful failure because you actually could be very successful in the world's terms, but have areas of life that you go, you know, this is one of the exercises we do at our couples retreat that we'll do this week at our couples retreat is we say, hey man, let's, I, I, I teach this concept called the successful failure. And I say, it's not that you're a failure, but there's probably area in your life that you go, man, we could be doing this better. You know, we're just, 
you know, and Covey always said success in one role doesn't justify failure in another role. So I think when you really break it down, it's like, man, I'm doing good over here, but I, I need to do better over here. And I think I think successful people struggle with that because they're so ambitious, they're so driven, they're so focused, they're so. But but what's it all worth at the end of the day? You know, if at some point your kids don't want to talk to you, or they don't want to spend time to with you, or they don't value your counsel or, or wisdom, you know. So you got it's a fine line. I think people got to walk there. Yeah, there's nothing better than your children, especially if they're the age of mine, that reach out to me and they want business advice or finance advice. And it's so powerful. My oldest daughter is an entrepreneur, owns a food truck and a catering service. And she reaches out to me for that advice on how to grow that. Um, and then my other daughter, we've had some financial advice stuff going on with her. And it's just been, it's really, it's so fulfilling when someone you love actually asks you for the advice that you people pay you for <laughs> right like yeah when someone actually inside the family says hey i don't just sit across from you at thanksgiving but i i appreciate what you're doing and i want to i want to learn more about that you know i tell you one of the things that amazes me about you coach is that you're so well educated on the mind and and, and obviously you're so dialed in with reading and learning tell me about the journey with that has it always been that way for you since a young age you love to read you love to i mean because you just, when I open your books, I can tell like, and, and get on a call with you, you're so ready. Like you're ready to go. You remind me of that fighter. That's like, he fought three weeks ago. He knocked the guy out and they're like, Hey, can you fight again? Oh yeah. I'm always in fight shape. I think yeah. coach bird is always in fight shape. Yeah. So help, tell me about that. I mean, I'm just, I'm really want to know about the learning when, process. When I you. was 15 years old, I went to a very small rural school that was not very progressive 500 students uh we didn't it wasn't i, w I didn't grow up around self-development but i was always coached i was always in athletics i was always coached when i was 15 years old i had a mentor who was a dentist who who said who mentored one person from our high school every year in speaking eye contact you know writing and he chose me for whatever reason he chose me so every night after basketball practice i went to his house for two hours every night he taught me cadence rhythm speaking well, as part of that mentorship, I I went to a leadership academy called the Broyhill Leadership Academy. The Broyhill family put on one week. I was scared to death. Something about that week cha changed me. I think that's where I got introduced to Covey initially. You know, it was all about leadership. How do you become a great leader? And I went home and I told my mom, who was a single mom, I'm like, man, I want to be a leader. And so I started studying great coaches because I had a fascination with basketball coaches. And, and those coaches would say, go read this book. You need to read this book. This is what you need to do. And so at 18 years old, it was really Covey. Don, a guy named Don Meyer, who was a great coach at David Lipscomb University in, in Nashville, said, if you don't read another book this year, pick up a copy of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. This was in 94. And I went and read it, and I just fell in love with it. I said, man, this is life-changing material. And I just became fascinated with reading and learning and, and growing and you know and so and certain facets of motivation and the psychology of how people act so that's really when that started for me and it ha i haven't looked back man if i got one second i'll read if i if i'm in a car for one minute if i'm on a bike i'm listening to something and uh so so i like studying great people you know you mentioned re you know the regrets a minute ago i'm reading dan pink's book i'll call the power of regret where he talks about we we're taught to live a whole our whole lives without any regrets he actually makes the argument in that book that if you regret something enough, it will cause a change in your behavior. And he talks about two types of regrets, if only and at least. 
if only I would have done this, if only I would have done this. And what's interesting is at least I was in the game. At least I gave it a shot. At least I gave it a try. At least I, I pushed it to the limit. And he talked about Olympians, if they won first, they didn't have any regrets because they won first, but if they won second, they had an if-only regret. If only I'd have trained a little harder. If only I'd have shaved off one minute, if only, one second. He said the third person always had the at-least regrets, which was at least I was in the top three. <laughs> at least I'm on the stage. See, I can't imagine as a former championship coach getting to the championship game and not winning, how devastating that would have been. And saying, at least I was in a championship. If only I would have done this one thing. Man, I think it would be heartbreaking. But the school I was at, the only other time they were in a championship game was 1979. They were 31-0 and and got beat in the championship game. Oh. And I think about, gosh, how devastating. You know, in a, in a sports way. So I think a lot about these things when I'm studying, and I'm looking for a wrinkle. How can I talk about this in a different way? Because I think one of my gifts that the good Lord gave me is how to package an idea, how to package a concept. And that's what can people consistently, a lot of top performers come to me now and say, man, I want to package my intellectual property. I want to package my method. And so that's been a lot of time coaching people on just that, on how to package their intellectual capital. Yeah, I, I think you're one of the best at, at that because I've seen proof of it. I mean, my, my business partner hired you as a coach, so... I know that I, and getting him to, to, to come off the money for coaching is a big deal. So <laughs> congratulations on that. Well, <laughs> I'd say I, you're a closer. Um, when you talk about that, those, about the regrets you just talked about the book you're reading, uh, I can think back in my life as a kid. And when I made the sports team, I was just happy. I made the team. Yep. I didn't let myself excel or hold myself accountable to excelling. But in business, I'm not that way. I learned my lessons from that. I don't, if I, if I, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do everything I can to be the best at it. I'm going to jump in. I call myself the self-proclaimed king of R and D. I rip off and it's rip off and duplicate. So if I see something someone's doing, I'm going to do it in my version of it, make it the best. If it's copywritten, send me a cease and desist letter and I'll stop doing it. But I think too many people try to be somebody they're not. And they try to become Coach Burt, or they try to become Ed Milet, yep. or they try to become Tim Grover. Yep. What do you have to say to the people about being who you are because you're you you know you bring unique value with the person you are, not trying to become someone else? Two things. One, there's a there's a cycle. Kuzis and Postner talked about this in the book, The Leadership Challenge, many years ago. There's a cycle of for a period of time you don't know who you are, so you emulate. For me, it was Covey. Right, I dug into Covey. I was like a little miniature Covey because I didn't really have my own stuff yet. <clears throat> so you look out and you emulate a master. Then, that, then there comes a season where you go, you know what? I feel like I have something to say. You start looking in. Then you start talking about your methods. You get traction. You get feedback. You recalibrate. Then you move on. You become the master. And people emulate you. Okay? Now, if you study mastery, and Green, I think, wrote the best book on mastery, Robert Green, all the greats, a lot of the greats he studied in that book, wrote, studied under a master for a season, typically four to seven years, right? Then they practice what they saw the master do for four to seven years. Then they become a master, and other people study under them. That is a lost art in today's society. Spending the time 
under a master, really learning something. People want it so quick that they, they're skipping these cycles, which is why they're really not that good. So they may be flashy, you know, on Instagram. They may look good. But when you really get up close to them, they don't have a lot of meat on the bone. The guys that you see that you're talking about, Newman, Grover, Milet, they all have a lot of meat on the bone. They paid the price to be great. They've got clear methodologies. They've tested those methodologies. They've been in the arena. They know how to win, which is why they make the most money, because they're that good, right? And, and it never ceases to amaze me how good they are when you're up close and personal or you get to really spend time with them, just through observation. So they haven't shortcut the process, the cycle, which is what, we, what everybody wants today. I want to get there today. I want to be a millionaire tomorrow. I want to be great. T.D. Jakes preached in a church in West Virginia for 10 years to 100 people before he started, started Potter's House. He didn't start Potter's House and, and become famous. He preached every day. He cooked the barbecue in the back. He preached the sermons. He, you know, he, he did everything. And I think that's what's missing in today's world. So people really are not that good. Now, the second thing I would tell you is when I ask people what their talents are, I never thought my work would be about helping people locate their skills, primary skills, package those skills, market those skills. But one of my most successful programs I've ever done, I think we did about $2.5 million of revenue in a, in a virtual program I did called Purpose to Profit. And what I found is that people don't know their primary skill. They don't know how to package that skill. They don't know how to market that skill. And they don't know how to monetize that skill. And they're struggling for clarity. What is my supposed to be doing? That's why Purpose Driven Life was selling a million copies a month when it came out many years ago. So a lot of my work has been helping people locate their skill set. Like with BJ, what do you have? How do you package it? How do you market it? How do you monetize it? How do you bring it to the world? Okay, this is a lot about what, I've, what I do a lot with top people today. But when I ask people, what are your skills? What's your primary skill? They can't tell me. They say very vague and generic things. I'm good with people. I got a big engine. I work hard. I'm like, no, no, dig in, dig in. What skill do you have that's a hard skill? What problem does that solve? Who would write you the biggest check to solve that problem? Now we have something to market. When you talk about, you know, it's funny because you see a lot of people that they, they feel that you feel that you see someone you felt was an overnight success, but it was a 30-year overnight success, right? Like they got to where they are now with tons and tons of hard work. Do you think by being with the right coach who's been down that path and investing the time and money into that can cut off some of that learning curve because you're not having to face the challenges that was brought on normally? It's the fastest way. The fastest way to mastery is who you're mentored by. Okay, when they, when he study mastery, you're going to hear Gladwell's 10,000 hours of practice, which is true, but, 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 but what he doesn't talk enough about in that book is correction and feedback. Not only do people that master something practice longer and harder, they also have coaches. They have correction. They have feedback. You can play golf for 10 years and still suck at playing golf, right? You, <laughs> yes, you, you, yes, you can. <laughs> yeah, you, you can hire a coach and be, get better golf quicker. Now, now in uh, The Art of Impossible, which is a book I studied to write Flip the Switch, Kotler talks about expediting mastery. And he used, you could actually cut the learning curve off to four years if it's real intense, long cycles of practice, immediate feedback, and he used motocross, skateboarders, extreme sports. And you know why? An extreme, extreme sport person is not afraid to break bones. They'll go out and try new things every day, break an arm, break a leg, and get right back on the bike and do it again. So they speed up the cycle because they're willing to just, they got no fear. 
And that's how you speed up mastery. But who you're mentored by drastically speeds up the cycle to mastery and production. I think that's so true. And, you know, I have a business coach that coaches me. He's been a huge help the last 18 months I've been with him. And I've been working one-on-one doing some stuff with Ben Newman. It's been incredible. And I'm hoping that it takes some of that curve off where I'm trying to go. But I I want you to do the comparison with if you're coaching someone to be better in basketball, shooting free throws, whatever that is, to someone who wants to be a better speaker, I want to talk about like the the kind of reps and stuff you think someone needs to get in and the comparison there. If you look at speaking, and uh, there's two things I do on speaking. I do the Michael Burt School of Speaking, Coaching, and Writing, which is really the business of speaking. Uh, there's 700,000 people in the United States that call themselves a coach. Average income of those coaches is 47000 a year which tells me they do not know how to monetize their skill set. Okay, so there's the business side of speaking, packaging, coming up with a concept, packaging a concept, marketing a concept, getting on stages, speaking. Okay, then there's the science and art of speaking. How do you connect to an audience? How do you take people on a journey? You know, yesterday a woman at this event I spoke at said, man, I didn't know how you're going to get us from A to B, but the way you got us from A to B with the stories and the impact and the emotions and the, right? I, th- I think Ben Newman is really good at this. And and how you, you know, it's like you're taking me on this journey and you're hitting me. And it's like, by the time we're finished, it's like, boom, we got there. And it hit every emotion I had. I laughed, I cried, I'm ready to take action. As a result, a woman walked up to me and said, I haven't been in coaching in 12 years, but one that one hour with you, told me I'm ready to get back in coaching. Okay, so I think there's two sides of the speaking world that you got to get good at. So I do something called Master the Stage with Tim Story, who is great at connection. He's spoken in 70 different countries. He's a pastor. Uh, So we do the art and science of connection, speaking, how to make a connection with an audience. Then I do the other things, which is really how do you make money with this? How do you make an offer? How do you invite people? How do you enroll people from a presentation? Because I've done presentations that have produced, you know, a two-hour presentation that produced 500000 of revenue in two hours with an audience of complete strangers. So there's a science to that. See, I've had coaching on all of that, how to connect, how to tell a story of origin, how to make an offer, how to make a multimillion-dollar offer, all of those things I've been coached on. Yeah. I remember you telling the story when you're on stage and it brought so much, you know, gets people on the edge of their seat, right? And that's something I've been working on a lot personally with, you know, Renee Rodriguez and yep. Renee and I've been working on that. He's helped me master some stuff on the stage and really work hard there. But the story is what separates you, I believe, from everybody else that gets on stage before or after you. Like, I felt bad for anybody that was going to speak after you that day. Like, I just, it's one of those things, right? You just you knew that it was going to be really hard for someone to get out there and compare to, to what you just brought, but that's tons and tons of reps, right? I mean, like you've been just mastering that craft all the time. Do you practice that consistently still today to try to make sure you bring more and more value every time you get on stage? Yes. And, and, you know, I spent six months with um, a guy named Dave Blanchard who owns all the rights to Ogmandino's work. He's really a specialist at connection intrinsic validation, agape love, how to really touch people at a deeper level, which requires vulnerability, touching people in a spiritual level. That that was a very valuable for me. 
and so I think when it comes to the practicing, yes, a lot of mine is natural though. It's a lot of instinct. So sometimes it's hard for me to teach a person how to shift gears in a talk. I can feel when I need to shift gears. I can feel when I need to take it down. I can feel when I need to bring it up. I can feel when I need to tell a story. I can feel when I need to tell something emotional. So it's very instinctual for me because I've been coaching for so many years to connect with an audience. And so that part, so a lot of people come to me and say, well, you watch my talk and give me feedback. And I say, you know, I don't really do, I don't do that as much. I, I, I do it part of Master of the Stage, but I don't do it a lot because it's hard for me to teach you that instinct I have. Yeah, and I think a lot of that comes from reading the crowd you're in, right? Knowing the audience and seeing where they're at. And I would agree, you're definitely a master of that. And that's something I've been working on myself is is watching the reactions I get as I tell the story. And should I continue going deeper with that? Or should I take it in a different vertical, deliver the same message, but change how it's being delivered? I feel that's a big separator with speakers who get invited back and ones who don't. Well, I spoke at a conference in Orlando not long ago to educators, and it it, it did not it did not land what's called a direct hit in the speaking world. And I just, I left kind of frustrated. And I asked the guy who brought me in, what happened? And he said, in 23 years, they've never had somebody push them like you pushed them. And he said, they didn't know what to do with it. He said, they loved it. But it, but it pushed them so hard. He said, we've never had a professional speaker. He said, we typically bring in people, and but not at your level. And he said they didn't know what to do because it just pushed them so hard that, and that's kind of my style, is I'm kind of getting back to what made me a championship coach, which is pushing and 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 trying to tap in. And some people are going to like that, Chris, and some people are not going to like it. Some people go like, man, I don't. And some people go, I loved it. I'm ready to get in because I'm really trying to quit messing around with people and say, look, I can help you, but you gotta you got to be ready to go when I push you here. And so I'm trying to do that harder with my audience to say, this is who I am. I'm going to push you just like I, what made me a championship coach as hard as I can. And some of you going to walk up and, and, and it's love when I finish because some people that I pushed and they can't take it, they walk right out and won't look at me. <laughs> like I was there yesterday at the end saying hi to everybody. The people who I scared would literally look away and run past me. The people that I hit would stop and go, dang, like that moved me. And that's the people I'm looking for. So if I could separate out in an hour, you know, who's serious and who's not serious, then that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Again, another powerful statement by you. I just, I know because I've seen it in person. So it's easy for me to realize that if I hadn't seen it in person, it'd be hard to understand, but you're a master of separating the people who are interested and who are not. Yep. Right. Let's don't waste our time with, with the pretenders. Yeah. And as we start to wrap things up, um, I, I wanted to want you to tell the story about when you were coaching basketball and the parent came to you and he talked about the potential, about potential of his, of his, of his yeah. I think it was his daughter had the uh, potential she had. Almost all the parents would say to me, my kid's been playing since she's four or five. We would typically get 150 kids try out. I, I could only keep, you know, on a good year, 30. That, that was a big number. So I had to cut, you know, 75 plus kids, which was heartbreaking. And the mom and dad would come to me and say, man, my, my daughter's got a lot. I would say, tell me about your daughter. My daughter's got a lot of potential. That's the first thing they would say to me. But she needs something. And they, and I would say, what do you think she needs? Structure, discipline, focus, accountability. And then they would say, she needs a good coach. She's got all this potential. She needs a good coach. 
And I would say, I got, I got a real serious question for you, but I got to ask you, is your daughter watching you reach your potential? And they would, Ooh. they would go, oh, <laughs> and I, I would say, isn't it hypocritical for us to tell our children they have potential if they're not watching us push, dream, strive. See, see, my kids watch me get up every day and go get it. My wife watches me get up and go get it every day. And, and if nothing else, just by them watching their dad go get it every day, I got to believe that my kids will say, this is, this is what you do. Dad gets up every day and he goes into battle. He fights for us. He believes in what he does. And my, my 10-year-old daughter, who's a handful, my 10-year-old daughter is a handful. Very strong-willed. She can get emotional. I've got, a, I've got a sports psychologist coaching her right now. She said to me one day when I went out to the car, she said, Daddy, go, go pro today. And uh, she said, because amateurs, they ain't never going to make it, Dad. And, and I had never said that specific thing to my daughter. She's heard me say it to my students. At some point, you got to leave your amateur desires behind and make a decision to go pro. And that word decide means to kill something off. And if you want to make the pro money, you got to go to the pro level. And you got and we have amateur desires, amateur feelings. And when I left that day, she said, go pro today, Daddy, because the amateurs ain't never going to make it. And I thought, that's cool. That, it's catching because I never said that directly to her. She's heard me say it. And uh, we went to dinner one night in Florida, me and my wife and my daughter. She said, Dad, I got some concepts I want to package up. And uh, I want to I want to do a clothing line called Jesus Girl. I want to do a boot camp. I want to do some things at the lodge. I need a landing page. And I thought, this is this is my ten year old kid, man. She's she's talking about packaging, and she's got, she sees a vision in her mind for doing boot camps around it. And she wants to do a clothing line, and I thought, man, that's cool. I'm proud of you. That is that's amazing, and and it just goes back to what you hear: things are caught, not taught, by our kids. And, and you didn't go teach her that specifically, but she caught that from you and from the actions, watching your dad consistently go pro, gives me chills just to think about that. What a powerful conversation that had to be. So I wanna wrap things up here with you, Coach, and, and I thank you so much for being on the show, but if somebody wants to go pro, they wanna take it to the next level, they wanna learn more about you, what's the best way to connect? I think if they're serious and they're watching this, they reach directly out to me, coach at coachbert.com. And just put, I'm serious. Yep. I'm ready to go pro. I do there you a go. lot of things. I'm doing a four-week series called A Confident Mind in, in May. It's 97 bucks. It's my way of just contributing to people. Everybody should be on that series where I teach you the best of confidence. Uh, I do boot camps. I do retreats. I do coaching programs. So, just the first thing is get in the game. Follow me on all the social media, Coach Michael Bird. I put out a ton of content. I document a lot of what I do every day. And uh, my hope is that it inspires and breathes life into people and uh, helps them play at their at their potential. Yep, there's no doubt about it, man. I appreciate you. I appreciate everything you do for everybody that watches and listens and appreciate what you've done for me writing the book and taking my, and calling me and, and connecting. So uh, I'll never forget the conversations we've had. Thank you so much, Coach. You're the man. God bless you. Look forward to working with your team. Thank you so much for tuning in to the One Hand at a Time podcast today. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and share. I'm often asked if I'm available for speaking opportunities or accepting new coaching clients. The answer is yes. Feel free to click the Calendly link in the show notes to set up a 30-minute call with myself. And remember, as we move forward in life, we do it one hand at a time.